el primero de mayo. <risa> Hello and welcome to the The Sam D Podcast. I am your host, Sam Duzame Jr. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube at The Sam D. That's T-H-E-E-S-A-M-D. For all content, audio, and visual, hit up thesamd.com. Follow along with the podcast on social media at The Sam D Podcast. Musical production done by May 1st Music. Support him at soundcloud.com slash May 1st Music. All right, game one. The hell did you see? I know what they told you you saw. And in the post game, if you flipped over to NBA TV, you got the real answer. You didn't get Mark Jackson, who was clearly gone off that yak in the Western Conference Finals, uh, giving superlatives left and right undeservingly to the point fraud. If you flipped over to NBA TV, you got the real. And the two prevailing things from last night's game was, goddamn, Coach Bud, even in the NBA Finals, you're not going to make an adjustment? And two, D-Book was not scared at the moment and set the tone early. Coach Bud let Brooke Lopez be Swiss cheesed up all goddamn night long. One five pick and roll, and it almost didn't even matter if it was one five. It was two five because D Book set the tone early with those pick and rolls, seeing what the coverage would be. And then once it was shown that, nah, they're just going to do a soft automatic switch. It's not even a hard switch where you go over the screen or trap or anything like that. They're just going to do an automatic switch. D-Book carved his way to 12 points in the first quarter, 16 overall in the first half, and set the blueprint for the second half for the point fraud to do what he does and dissect it in the same way that D-Book did in the first half. So while you can come to me with the box scores, you could come to me with the stats of the point fraud, if you watch the game, the best player on the floor set the tone in the first quarter and then the blueprint was set. And the blueprint was set because Coach Bud refused to make an adjustment off what the best player on the floor established in the first quarter. You let Mans go for a quick light 12. A quick light 12 in the first quarter. Fee throws, quick jimmies, layups, quick 12 in the first quarter of the first game of the NBA Finals. You're supposed to be riding this momentum of the Nigerian freak with the Joloff Rice step, doing a Willis Reed, walking onto the court, starting when we've heard nothing but he's doubtful. He might even miss the first two games. We're going to save him for the home games in Milwaukee in game three. We're going to give him more time to rest. All of a sudden, the starting lineups are announced, and there's Giannis Antetokounmpo's name in the starting lineup. She's like, oh, shit, we got a finals now. We got a finals now. Now Milwaukee is kind of stealing the rhythm, stealing the vibe, stealing the euphoria of Phoenix at the crib. Like, yo, we about to play game one with no Giannis. We might get two games off with no Giannis. Oh, it's about to be cakewalk season. And Coach Bud, who's been downplaying it, he's doubtful. We're not sure. We're not even sure if he's going to make the trip. 
yada, 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 all of that goes off. And you say, nah, he's playing. And it was like, oh, shit, Giannis is here. And then a quick 12 from the best player on the court, even with Giannis there, Devin Booker puts everything back into perspective that it doesn't matter if Giannis is here. I'm Devin Booker. You see the old schools I continuously pull up in. You see them gold spokes I'm sitting on when I ride up. You know what type of time I'm on. D-Book set the tone. Coach Bud continues to amaze all of us in the fact that he can never make in-game adjustments. Game-to-game adjustments, kind of, sort of. But in-game adjustments, no chance. They tried to go small. They tried to go small with Bobby Portis. How's that going small? I don't know how that's going small. With Bobby Portis is 6'10". You went from 7'7", Brooke Lopez, to 6'10", Bobby Portis, and that was your adjustment to go small. This game is about adjustments. D-Book went out there and carved him up for a quick 12, a quick 16 in the first half on his way to 27 overall. Best player on the floor. Laid the blueprint for the point for to go in there and cook in the second half to do what he does, which is basically I'm just going to keep running the same play down your throat because guess what? Coach Bud is refusing to stop the auto-switching and refusing to have his big man get help after being exposed on a defensive switch against a smaller, quicker ball handler. And, you know, Kenny DeJet Smith made a great point on NBA TV, but it's an obvious one, but it's one that I think bears repeating because when you're really talking about analysis, it really comes down to, well, if it was the other way around and we had Brooke Lopez posting up the point fraud or D book, you would probably send help. You would double team to get the ball out of his hands. That's too much of a mismatch. Why don't teams, why don't coaches, why don't philosophies go the other way? Where if you have a guard up top in the middle of the floor and you have a wing, a one or a two in this case, against a five, why won't you double team to get the ball out of his hands? You won't force the action. You'll just allow the smaller, faster, quicker player to do whatever they want against your big. But if it was the inverse and it's your big on a small, you got the whole team running over trying to double, triple, quadruple team. Coach Bud, what you going to do? This game is about adjustments. This league is about adjustments. Yet in spite of all of that, We've seen too many times where Coach Bud has been exposed for not being able to make adjustments. Yet here he is in the NBA Finals. Because at the end of the day, what do I always say? Talent wins over everything. He's got a talented roster that can win in spite of him. But this is where things get magnified. This is a game-by-game analysis. You can get away with this stuff in a regular season. Because the Bucks usually just run away. They have one of the highest point differentials in the league because they're normally blowing teams out for the better part. Players are taking whole quarters off or whole halves off because they've jumped out to such of a big lead. They could coast to a victory without 
their starters getting back in the game because the talent overwhelms most teams. But here in the finals, here in the playoffs, you're going up against like-minded teams or teams with as talented rosters as you. So when you have, in theory, I mean, look, y'all know I think D-Book's the best player on both teams, but I could see someone saying the Bucks are a more talented team. I may not agree just because I think D-Book is the best player on both teams, but okay, I'll let you get it off that the Bucks are more talented. Certainly, after D-Book, they got the best next two players? Then you got to throw the point fraud in there, and then you can debate whether you think Drew or Middleton is better or worse than the point fraud. So I can understand that. But when you have D-Book who comes out and sets the tone with a quick 12, a light, easy 12, drawing fouls, slowing the game down, which I let out on the, on the bonus coverage, the bonus content. I gave y'all, you know, the full interview I did with Greg Larnard yesterday. And that was a hell of a ride. I'm sure most of y'all, if y'all have not had a chance to go check that out, y'all probably should. Because there's a lot of funny shit in there. And part of the stuff that I talked about there was, you know, if you're the Suns, you need to slow this game down. That's how they run. If you have the point fraud as your main guy, you're not going to do a lot of running. Because it's all about him when he has the rock. He's very methodical. It's damn near like Kyrie with the 30 dribbles per possession. You know, he's very methodical in the pace of play. And you saw that last night. I don't really know what the fast break points are. I don't really get into the box scores that deeply. But just off watching it, it was clear. You saw the Bucks, and yeah, I said the, said the same thing on Greg Larner's show. Like, the Bucks are going to have to try to push the tempo. Get as many possessions as they can. And you saw that. They made a concerted effort more in the first half to do that. In the second half, I didn't really see that as much. But they tried to push the tempo. Because that's what you have to do. You got to get a team like Phoenix because... What the point fraud wants wants to do is every possession come down and isolate your mismatch. He's willing to dribble out 18 of the 24 seconds on the shot clock to get the mismatch he's waiting for. He's willing to do that every time down. So if you're the Bucks, you need to say, man, fuck all that. We just need to keep running. Every missed shot, run. They get a made bucket, get the ball inbounded quick. Let's run. Early offense, early offense. You can see it. So D-Book going out there and having a quick 12 in the first quarter and getting fouled, going to the line. I think he went to the line, had six feet those in the first quarter. That established the pace. We're going at our speed. And you saw what the Bucks tried to do. They caught Brooke Lopez uh, on an early transition offense break. They caught him for an easy bucket. They tried to push the tempo, but the Suns stayed in what they are and who they are. And it wasn't even the point fraud. It was D-Book going out there and saying, nope, I don't give a fuck if Giannis hobbled out here to try to steal some of the shine and some of the spotlight. I'm at the crib. It's game one. I went through all them L's. I watched them jettison Earl Watson out of here prematurely. This is my time. And he went out there and gave you a quick 12 on the way to 16 and a half and 27 overall. 
That's what your best player does. Don't give a fuck at the point for all I have more points. If we're going to do box score watching, then you can have fun with that. We could do the box plus minus shit if you want to. If P.J. Tucker didn't even score a point but had box plus minus, what, 13, some shit like that? I mean, you can do that. Have fun with the box scores. There's there's a calculator on your phone. You can do. You can join the blue check boys. You can join the analytics squads and the metrics boys and have fun with that. I watched D book set the tone in the first quarter, lay the blueprint for the point fraud in the second half. More importantly, the third quarter, and it was all she wrote for the Bucks in Game One, despite Giannis going out there trying to steal the shine. I don't know how much more changes in this series. Giannis wasn't Giannis, right? Giannis wasn't dominant. I mean, he weight-roomed uh, Bossman 99. He weight-roomed DeAndre Ayton. You know, so he shows you that he's got something to give you. But the problem's going to remain. What about the others? Drew Holiday was more aggressive without Giannis. And last night with Giannis back, he looked more like Drew Holiday when Giannis plays. That's not who they need in this series. They need Drew Holiday when Giannis ain't there. A uber-aggressive Drew Holiday. And you did not get that last night. And it's amazing because a guy with his skill set, a guy with his skill set, I mean, look, I'll tell you this, and and this is where, you know, you just have to watch stuff and listen to stuff and listen to how players play. You know, Zeke last night said he would get 40. He would average 40 today. (laughs) And I believe that he believes every syllable of that. Zeke said last night on the post game, they said, yo, Zeke, if you could get it off, like how the point fraud and D-Book was able to cook tonight in terms of you could get a 1-5 switch and you got a big out there on an island with you all night long, what would you do? And he said it will be easy 40. Easy 40. So if you're Drew Holiday, I'm not saying he's as good as Zeke was. He's better than Zeke was defensively. That's that's without a doubt. He's not a, as good of a point guard as Zeke. On, from an offensive standpoint, no, nowhere close, right? Damn sure not as aggressive as Zeke was. Zeke put them shots up. But if you have similar size and similar skill set to a guy like Zeke, and he's saying, I would get an easy 40. Now, again, I'm not saying Drew Holiday is Zeke. I'm saying similar skill sets to a, to a certain degree. And he's playing in the easier era. He's playing in the era with no hand checking. All the rules are predicated on scoring. He should be able to get to his spot night after night after night. Y'all know the contract they gave him. They obviously thought that highly of him and obviously wanted to keep Giannis happy. But they obviously thought enough of him to give him that kind of bread. 30, 40 mil a year. Drew Holiday can't get to his home spot night after night. Drew Holiday is good, is really good when he wants to be. And that's where shit gets shaky. And that's where the Bucs might have the more talented team if you just look at rosters. But when you're looking at game changers, when you're looking at in the moment, can you get it done? 
When you're looking at people with the kill switch, I don't see anyone on the Bucks that has the kill switch. Middleton might be the closest. And that's the whole thing with me and Giannis, as y'all know. Whereas you go to the to the Suns, I mean, you saw it in the bubble. 8-0, and Book was hitting game winners. And even, even if you go before that, just when Book was cooking on the regular, anonymously in the desert. Before the point fraud came in, waved his magical pixie dust, and all of a sudden the Suns became this juggernaut. Hope y'all catch the sarcasm. Book has that kill switch. And kill switch doesn't always mean in the fourth quarter with a few seconds on the clock, can you do it? Although we've seen Book do that. Sometimes it's, oh shit, Giannis is playing tonight. We thought we were going to have it easy. Okay, game plan switched up. And D Book's mind is, nope, I'm still going to do what I do. I'm going to go out here and cook. And that's what that man did. 12 in the first quarter, 16 in the first half, 27 overall. Light work. Kill switch. I'm taking all that momentum you're trying to build off. Giannis limping onto the court and trying to give it a go. I'm going to snatch all that in the first quarter. Kill switch. If your job could pay for your side johns or your side pieces apartment, like if they could pay for their rent, would you do it? You go to your employer and say, yo, part of me working here is I need you to take care of wifey, my queen, my side piece, my side John. I need you to take care of their rent. And your job is cool with it. How loyal would you be to that job? Very loyal, right? Like, it wouldn't matter... If another team or another employer came to you with a bigger deal or alleged bigger platform or an alleged bigger history, it wouldn't matter. If you could find a job that could pay for your wifey, your queen, your side piece, your side john's rent, you riding with them, right? And now I guess we now know why KD and Kyrie are in Brooklyn. <laughs> Allegedly. Of course, allegedly. So this Nets book got the the social media feeds, uh, group texts, the Slack channels on fire right now. This Nets book uh, by mans who used to work at Bleacher Report, who's kind of gone off and is doing his own thing now independently. And he followed around since 2019, the Nets. And specifically, he befriended KD and Kyrie. So a lot has come out of this, quote, tell-all book that he claims is all factual. He's done all types of vetting of stories and has cross-referenced with tons of interviews to uh, confirm anecdotes for this book. And he's making a press run. And as with any press run, as we'll get to Scotty and his press run, and what he jumped out the window and said about Phil Jackson to sell tequila or whatever liquor he's pushing in a upcoming book. This guy, I believe it's Matt, Matt Sullivan or Mike Sullivan, something like that. He's out here giving you tea straight from the book. 
and saying it's all facts. And one of the things that he came out there and said is, yeah, the player empowerment is real. And the player empowerment is to the point where, you know, the Nets are paying the rent of girlfriends slash side pieces of players. Now, allegedly the book does not implicate that that's being done by Katie Kyrie. But if you're the Nets, are you paying the rent of the side piece or the wifey or the whatever of Nicholas Claxton or Kyrie Irving? TLC or Slim Reaper? That's one of the bombshells that has come from this book. Nets are out here, which would be obviously a clear violation. So you know the league is going to have to publicly say they're going to investigate some things that have been uh, foretold in this book. But whether they actually come down on anything significant, I sincerely doubt it. But it remains to be seen because there is a lot of stuff in this book. There's a lot of tea here in this book. So we have that. That stood out to me out the gate is that the Nets are out here allegedly paying the rent of side pieces and girlfriends of players. Another thing that's come out is that Kyrie and KD specifically don't care about the anthem. They don't care about standing for the anthem. They don't care about acknowledging the anthem, anything like that. And that goes to what I think a lot of players feel. If you went through that whole bubble experience last year and you've, you know, been cognizant of what's been happening with Colin Kaepernick and in other sports, uh, just the whole Black Lives Matter thing and what the anthem really means and who will fight you tooth and nail for the right to stand for that anthem. I'm not surprised that a bunch of, you know, early 30s to late 20 year old black millionaires don't give two shits about the anthem. But the Nets have been complicit in this and, you know, basically letting them rock and letting them cook with not having to acknowledge the anthem. That's going to be a talking point, I'm sure. Now, what has come out that I think is actually even more impactful than Katie and Kyrie not really giving a fuck or giving two shits about the anthem is the fact that in this reporting on that, There's an anecdote brought up that Mark Cuban of the Mavericks basically ordered his stadium operators to stop playing the anthem. And that was a real thing that happened. And no one said anything. How did Mark Cuban get that off? And again, assuming all of this is true, If the Mavericks were able to skirt the anthem and no one said anything. But then, you know, the league had to step in allegedly. Again, all this is alleged because we're assuming we're taking this author at his word. And he comes from a credible background in terms of being an investigative journalist. So we're going to take him at face value. He had access to KD and Kyrie. He was very upfront with them, if you let him tell it. He was very upfront about what this book was going to be and what he was going to put in the book and what he wouldn't put in the book. But if you're going through the list of what he put in his book, it's like, well, damn, what didn't you put in the book? 
He's basically called KD a weedhead hooper. All KD wants to do is to hoop and smoke. And Kyrie is every bit of the enigma as I've been talking about here on this pod. And there's a Boston angle here in the book that I think speaks to what I talked about uh, a few pods ago. We'll get there. But yeah, how did Mark Cuban get off without playing the anthem in his arena? And the league stepped in, allegedly, and said, you know, we have to play the anthem. We can't just choose not to play the anthem. It was mandated across the league, but it seemed to be subliminally aimed at the Mavericks because the Mavericks were willing to just go all the way with it and say, well, we just won't even play the anthem. Let's not even subject our players. And if you look at the roster of the Mavericks, that ain't the most optically surface level Black Lives Matter type roster in comparison to the rest of the league. The league is about 70 to 80% black. Uh, The Mavericks almost might be the antithesis of that. And they chose not to play the anthem. So if a team that's full of a bunch of Euro guys and a sprinkle of a couple of black guys in Tim Hardaway Jr. and whoever else, Finney Smith, if they're deciding we're not going to rock with the anthem, how did they? How were they able to get away with that? Again, assuming that's true. So that to me is way more engaging, way more of a, of a storyline or anecdote than, oh, KD and Kyrie don't fuck with the anthem. I mean, I didn't need to hear that to know that. I would have assumed that out the gate. But to have the owner of a team, a progressive forward-thinking owner, allegedly, and Mark Cuban saying, yeah, fuck the anthem, who's come under fire for some of his work practices in his work environments, to be the owner of a team that has a more of a 50-50 split in black and white players and a predominantly white fan base in a part of the country that is Bible Belt, heavily red state and all of that to say, we're not going to play the anthem. That to me, that's the story. But, you know, it went under the radar. Do you have the notion of Nick's tape trying to pull up and get to KD through his dad? The Knicks thought they still had a chance or tried to shoot a Hail Mary late when everyone and their mama knew that not only was Kyrie going to Brooklyn, but KD was riding with him to Brooklyn. The Knicks tried to shoot a Hail Mary by hollering at KD's pops and trying to infiltrate that way. And they hopped on a Zoom with KD's pops, basically like, yo, talk to your son. Come on, son, it's the Mecca. It's New York. If he wants to come to New York, why would he want to go to Brooklyn? Yada, yada, yada. You know the old rhetoric, the tired Knicks tape rhetoric that continuously gets shut down year after year after year by big name luminary free agents. So they tried to run game on KD's pops and KD's pops ran up on KD and KD was like, pops, I love you, but fuck out of here. The move is Brooklyn. Kyrie has sold me on it. That's where we ride it. That's 
a bombshell that has come out from this book. Hove allegedly yelling at Adam Silver or someone of Adam Silver's ilk in the lead up to the formation of the Brooklyn Nets. Apparently they were beefing over the colors of the Brooklyn Nets. Apparently someone high up in the league office and the insinuations make it believe, make you believe it was Adam Silver. There was conversations about having predominantly black players in jersey colors that were black and white. Someone at the league office high up thought that from an optics perspective, that doesn't look the greatest. In a man's hove, allegedly had to bark on somebody. Capitalist hove swoops in to yell at somebody, to get at somebody, to shut down somebody for thinking that predominantly black players might not look their best in black and white uniforms. What else is mentioned is that this hove involvement in the Nets thing was completely overblown. Where did you hear that first? They talked about how the logo, the design, the color schemes, all that stuff that was given, the credit was given to Hove, like this was Hove's vision. They had to pay off the actual designers, the actual people that came up with the scheme just so they could sell the notion that Hove did all this. So again, <laughs> capitalist Hove, he's taking credit for other people's work. Not the first time he's done this. What up, young Chris? So Hove, again, who owned less than half a percent of the team and needed Jason Kidd to get him in in the first place. But on every rap song imaginable, he brought the Nets to Brooklyn. I own the building. I own my seats. I own this. I own that. I could have brought the Nets to Brooklyn for free, you fucking dweebs. All this stuff that he put out there and all the real shit is coming out behind the scenes about how he had little to no involvement in the Nets actually being a thing. But that's y'all goat, not mine. Y'all keep on wearing them funny looking hats with the plans on them if you want. Won't catch me in that shit. That's your hero, not mine. So Kyrie in Boston. So apparently, the person the most influential in getting Kyrie about the paint in Boston that was not his grandfather who passed away. The person who was able to convince and maybe convince is too strong of a word, but again, the insinuation is there in the book. The person with the most influence, the person with the most cachet into kind of planting seeds in Kyrie's head that maybe Boston isn't the place for a outwardly speaking black man such as yourself. The person who did all of that Allegedly, according to this book, Bill Russell. <laughs> King Celtic number one. Chief Celtic 
number one. So what the fuck does Boston have to say now? Boston, who shit on Bill Russell every chance they got. And I'm not just saying that for hyperbole. They literally shit in Bill Russell's bed. Go look it up. Do your Googles. What the fuck can Boston say now? The greatest Celtic of all time. I know y'all gonna say Larry Bird. Fuck all that. We on some black shit today. Greatest Celtic of all time. Is a black man. And is telling another black man. Maybe Boston ain't for you. I see a lot of myself in you. And how you want to give it up outwardly. And tell these people about themselves. Well let me tell you something youngin. Boston's probably not the place for you to do that then. And this happened because apparently they were at Kobe's gym. And we know how Kobe and and Kung Fu Kyrie gave it up. They had a lot of love for each other. So they're hooping. This is post, obviously, the helicopter. They're posted up at Kobe's gym. It's Kung Fu Kyrie, KD, the beard, and some other net players and some other uh, French players, right? Some other hoopers. Bill Russell's at these at these games, at these makeshift games, these makeshift practices, what whatever you want to call them. Bill Russell's in the cut. Bill Russell's watching the action, staying involved with the game. And then after these games, him and Kyrie would have one-on-ones. And they would chop it up. And they would chop it up about his tenure in Boston and what he wants to do going forward. And trying to get acclimated in should he commit and buy in to th- all things Boston. And this was already after he had said, I'm going to come back to Boston. Which is what he was supposed to say because he can't say anything else. If he would have been non-committal, they would have killed him. And if he would have said, I'm not coming back, they would have really roasted him. So he tried to toe the line and say, yeah, I'm coming back. Well, well, yeah, I am coming back. I want to be here, da, 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 which is what every other athlete says. But for some reason, when Kyrie says it in Boston, it becomes a bigger thing. Bill Russell is giving him the real deal, the T, on what it was to be a black player in Boston, to be a 11-time champion and still face criticism for racial things in Boston. I bring the Celtics 11 fucking championships And I'm still getting called the N-word. I bring Boston 11 championships and they still call into question my acumen. I bring Boston 11 championships and they're still calling me out for my political views. This is what Bill Russell's telling Kung Fu Kyrie. So that, along with the passing of his grandfather... Kyrie said, man, fuck Boston. I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. I don't want to be here. The boy genius isn't what y'all told me he was. I don't want to be here. Danny Ainge is a scammer. I don't want to be here. So that, to me, is a huge storyline. So we have Mark Cuban saying, we're not going to play the anthem. You have the Nets team allegedly paying for side pieces, wifeys, girlfriends, Rent 
out of the team budget. And you have the number one catalyst outside of the passing of his grandfather for Kyrie Irving leaving Boston being Boston's most memorable player of all time. At the minimum, the greatest black Celtic of all time. I can say greatest Celtic overall, but I know how people feel about Larry Bird. So at the bare minimum, the catalyst is the greatest black Celtic of all time. That's who played a part in Kyrie saying, get me out of Boston. And oh yeah, by the way, KD likes to smoke a lot of weed and hoop. There's some other stuff there. I mean, obviously the Harden stuff goes back to a couple of years. Uh, you know, I've insinuated that here. You know, obviously I'm not doing reporting like this guy was, so I've, I'm not privy to all the information, but there was enough being talked about in group chats and stuff like that for me to be like, oh, okay, this Harden thing was in the mix for a minute. And this book kind of confirms that it's been happening since the earliest 2018. The seed was kind of planted. 2019, you know, it got closer, obviously, last year in the pausing of the regular season last year. It gave a lot of players chances to kind of link up and, and hoop on the low, but under the radar of the league's eyes, allegedly, wink, wink. And that's what dudes were doing. They were hooping on the low. They were hooping with no little to no surveillance. They were hooping illegally. And part of that group was KD, Kyrie, and the Beard. And they were trying to figure out how the hell do we get the beer to BK? And who are we willing to give up to get the beer to BK? And those secret runs, those closed gym runs that they were doing with Bill Russell in the stands, in the tuck, that's where they were trying to do like a process of elimination of who they wanted to keep on this roster. And player empowerment has come all the way full circle where I've told you. And you can go back and check the archives. I've said how KD has taken what LeBron started and put it on its ear. He's turned this into some AAU shit where I just get all the best hoopers that are my friends and we're going to run together and we're going to hoop together. His man's DeAndre Jordan is on the squad. His man's Jeff Green is on the squad. His man's Kyrie is on the squad. And they went and were able to find a way to recruit his man's James Harden to the squad. This is what player empowerment looks like. This is what the league and the owners don't want. But when you're, when you're, the way the league is set up, the way basketball is set up, there's only five dudes on the court. If you have a top five, the top 10 player as one of your five, that person carries a lot of weight. It's only 30 some gigs. If you're one of those gigs and you have a top five, a top 10 player, you have to pay attention to him. You have to acquiesce to some of their demands. You may have to pay a side chick's rent. You may have to fire a coach who you think has built the culture, a culture that has been fostered enough to have players good enough to lure in top five, top 10, top 20 talent to your team as free agents. You may have to do that. You may have to jettison some of that talent, that homegrown talent, to bring in another top five, top ten type player to acquiesce the current 
top five, top ten players already on your roster. That's what player empowerment is. LeBron brought this in in both stints in Cleveland. He lost a little bit of it in Miami, which I think predicated him going back to Cleveland to cement that player empowerment to get what he missed. He was missing that old thing, so he wanted that old thing back. So he went to Cleveland and cleaned that up by getting his player empowerment bag back. And we know how he's moving it in L.A. You saw him and Dame, right? You saw him and Dame. That's all I'm going to say about that. But you saw him and Dame. You saw the smile on both their faces. Okay. Okay. But the prevailing notion is going to come out that those two guys, KD and Kyrie, are running the Nets. I didn't need a book to tell me that, to be quite honest. We've seen the moves that they have made. We've seen the fact that DeAndre Jordan is still on this roster. We've seen that. Even though and one of the few moves of Steve Nash showing he has a backbone is him going to KD and Kyrie saying, I know DeAndre is your man's, but he's washed. He's washed. He can't hoop. And that's what I talked about on the last pod where, where the homies was on, where we were talking about the Nets and Steve Nash and is he at fault and how come he didn't go with more size. And I'm like, well, obviously he thinks DeAndre can't hoop because DeAndre was hooping early in the year. That might have been one of the few small victories Steve Nash could win on a team where he has no real say in anything, not anything significant. He might be able to leverage, yo, I'm going to let y'all do whatever y'all want to do, but please don't make me play DeAndre. Because I know he don't got nothing left. I know that's y'all man's, but if y'all look past that, y'all know he don't got that much left. Why do I need to keep running DeAndre out here? I'd rather go dust off Nicholas Claxton. So that might be one of the few battles that Steve Nash could win. But this player empowerment thing is real. But I didn't need this book to know that. But I think it's always interesting to see the details that they're willing to disclose. The simple fact that someone in the organization or multiple people in the organization, including players, were willing to disclose the fact that girlfriends, side pieces, side chicks, wifeys, whatever you want to call them, their rents were being paid by the team? That's amazing to me that multiple people would disclose that to a reporter that's telling you, I'm here to write a book. Right? So it's a little crazy that that was willing to be disclosed to a journalist. My thing is this. If you know this is where it's going, who's going to try to one-up this net stuff? Who's going to be the next star to be able to have this type of sweetheart deal like KD and Kyrie in Brooklyn? Who's going to be the next one? Because the league is a copycat league. Everyone was trying to be like the Warriors a couple of years ago. Now they've kind of learned, well, you need to have two of the three, if not three of the three greatest shooters of all time to make that thing work. That's going to be hard to do. But now, if you need to get three of potentially the top 20 players in the world, maybe top 15 players in the world, depending on how you feel about Kyrie, you just need to acquiesce to all their demands 
I think there's multiple teams who will be willing to get that off more than trying to go find the next Steph, Clay, and KD. So who's it going to be? Knicks tape, you really want to turn things around? Going to start buying women houses, bruh. I mean, you got the Westchester Knicks. They up there. There's a lot of real estate in Westchester. Trust me on that. There's a lot of real estate up there. You really want Julius to stay? I, mean, I know he's married. But I'm saying extra crib or two might help. Steven Jackson, Jimmy Butler, Irsan Ilasova? Very weird. Very, very weird. Okay, Rachel. It's time to talk. The Rachel Nichols story has gotten out of control. The Maria T Taylor angle has gotten out of control. Everyone's chiming in. Everyone has an opinion. And everyone's kind of making the same two points. What I'm here to ask is, will y'all care a few weeks from now? None of this is new. None of this is going anywhere. Will any of y'all really care a few weeks from now? It's the latest thing in where the industry and people are telling you their truth. And for some reason, we all act surprised when we hear their truth. I talked about it on the Greg Larnard show uh, yesterday. You know, it's it comes to a point where as a black person, a black man specifically in this industry, I often have to keep wondering if I have this job because of the color of my skin. That's not the way it should be. I've earned everything I've been given, but because of the rooms that I'm in, and the lack of color in the rooms that I'm in, I have to look around and say, well, what makes me so special? If it comes to the point where if you look into my career, you know, my first full-time media gig, if you look at that holiday photo, the only one that I ever showed up to or pulled up to, it's me and I'm the darkest thing in that whole group. And it's me and like 15 to 20 other men. And I'm the darkest thing of that whole crew. So it's like, well, how did I sneak in? Obviously, if I look at this room, I'm not supposed to be here. If I play the odds, there's 20 people in here. 19 of them are white men. As the black man... In this room, I have to feel like, well, shit, did they just let me get in because having 20 out of 20 would be too much, but 19 out of 20 is plausible? When I go to other companies, other media entities, and the ratio isn't that much greater, if at all, than the 19 out of 20 that I just left, what am I to think? When you walk the halls of that media entity and you only see one person of color in a management position, I mean, what am I to think? 
tokenism is a real thing. And tokenism and diversity hires and quotas are real conversation. It happens every time. I know at every place I've been, at every role I've had in media, there's been that conversation in regards to me. Largely unjustified, but this is the game that we're in. When the industry is run by people who don't look like me, when they hire someone who looks like me, others who look like them will automatically say, oh, well, they only hired him because he doesn't look like us. They have to have somebody here who doesn't look like us. It can't be 20 out of 20, 19 out of 20, you're good. So that's the mentality we're looking at here. That to me is the larger point outside of this contrived Maria versus Rachel thing. Because look, Rachel said what? She said her truth. She can't deny what she said. She hasn't tried to deny. She's tried to give a bullshit apology of what she said, but she meant every syllable. She meant all that shit. And LeBron's man's, which I think is gone under the radar because of the whole perceived cat fight between Maria and Rachel. LeBron's man's said that the Black Lives Matter thing is exhausting. Now, we've given Bron all the props in the world for player empowerment, trying to be a black businessman. He's got Hove as his mentor, capitalist Hove as his mentor. So we've given LeBron all this built-in cachet of how he moves as a businessman. He's created his own media space to get his own media narratives off. He's done all the things that we would assume someone in his position would do. But he's got a dude in his camp that feels that Black Lives Matter as a talking point is exhausting. And this is his PR guy. So we talk about Mav Carter, World Wide West, all the dudes that LeBron built himself with and carried with him along the way. And it's a black infrastructure. But here we go where they have a person in their crew that's not of the culture and they're giving takes and stating opinions on the record or maybe not on the record because this was low-key recorded illegally. Although if you want to believe it was a hot mic or she didn't cut off the recording fully or properly, I, I don't know. I don't know, but the shit was rolling. But you have someone that's affiliated closely with LeBron making a hot take that would be of someone who's anti-LeBron. So this is why when we give these dudes these props and we give these dudes for having these companies, these media companies, these just these conglomerates that are just all in focus and in tune with the athlete, you have to understand that they're also building with, for lack of a better term, the other side. And they may not know how that person is giving it up because that person just wants a job just like anybody else wants a job. So I don't know if LeBron knows that his man's, his PR guy was exhausted or felt exhausted in constantly having to deal with the Black Lives Matter angle. I don't know if LeBron knew that. But now that he does know that, and I mean, look, this footage has been bubbling for a year, right? Deadspin had the shit last year. So 
Where is Mans now? Is he still in LeBron's camp? Is he part of this Space Jam run? Where's Mans now? Because that's where the empowerment really comes. If you're LeBron, does LeBron really need a PR guy, by the way? Does LeBron really need a PR guy? I mean, outside of the yes, Jill, mm, let me not. Anyway, I don't know what's up with LeBron. Because if I'm to believe all the moves that he's making off the court, and that stuff is verified, it's also troubling to me that he would have someone in his camp who has said, whether it's on the record illegally or not, Black Lives Matter is is exhausting. He's working for a man that has a school in Cleveland that is paying for black and brown students to go to college. He is working for a man that allegedly had N-words spray painted on his L.A. mansion. He is working for a man that at one point in time was homeless and has gone on to become a billion dollar athlete. Is this man still working for LeBron? So while we want to get into the alleged cat fight, that's not really a cat fight. While we want to talk about who maybe Rachel may have laid up with in the bubble or not. While we want to go around in circles of does Maria Taylor deserve these opportunities that she's getting? And why is she getting these opportunities? Is it because she's black? Is it because ESPN, ABC, Disney as a whole has a horrific diversity record while we're all wrapped up into all those many aggregated storylines. To me, it comes down to tokenism. When you're viewed as a token, how much harder is it for you in your career path? And token could be, you could be the token Asian. You could be the token LGBTQ token woman. You could be the token anything. Being that token, how does that affect your career path and your career trajectory? Because everyone likes to point out how we can help you. And it could point out the ancillary times where it has helped you. But they also don't talk about how it can hurt you. Well, Sam, we already have a black producer. I don't know how optically it would look if we now hire another black producer. Those words don't have to be said for that message to be brought across, right? I've seen those things happen. One of these days, probably when you're going to have to pay for some content from me, I can give some of those stories out. The statute of limitations has run out on some of those stories. But that's what it is. That's how shit goes down. For real, for real. That's corporate America. It's not just media. That's just corporate America. So you want to get into who Rachel has smashed? I kind of insinuated a few pods ago about the yams and why she may have got that story from Jimmy Butler ASAP after the practice. I gave you all of that. If, if y'all paid attention, I gave you that sub. Now it's become a thing where Jimmy and Rachel, I'm like, well, y- y- yeah. Again, allegedly, I'm not going to put my name on it, but I'm just saying Sources close to the The Sam D Podcast insinuate, nah, I mean. 
Now you're hearing stuff on Twitter. Erisan Ilasova, Captain Jack, the way he's riding for her. Is he riding for her because he really rocks with her like that and values the relationship of being on the jump? Or is there more to it? Allegedly. So this is where we at with it. I know y'all wanted me to get into this Rachel Nichols thing and y'all wanted me to break down the cat fight, but to me, it's not a cat fight, number one. Number two, Rachel's still protected. Even though they're trying to take stuff from her to make it look like she's being punished, you know she ain't been fired yet. You know she ain't been suspended yet. You know she ain't been terminated yet. There's no mutual parting ways yet. She's good over there. Jalen Rose's daughter put it out there for everyone to see. I don't need to echo that. Y'all have seen the tweet. If not, I'll retweet it on the DCMD podcast link, uh, Twitter link. So it's all there. There's no cop and please or anything like that. If you want to get into anything, we could get into how your man's perk and Richard Jefferson had to cop more please than Rachel after her apology. We could get into that if you want. But I mean, we know why they did that. That's what I'm saying. Like if if you follow this pod and you're really listening, when all this stuff happens, you should be hitting it with the Jordan shrug. It really should be Jordan six threes against Portland and that fraud Clyde Drexler. It really should just be that shrug. Like, all right. Oh, Rachel apologized for 10 seconds while Perk and Richard Jefferson had to cop pleas for more than two minutes each on the same topic. Okay. It is what it is. We know what it is. We all, it's, it's all a facade. Sports media is wrestling. Y'all clown wrestling, but engaging in this back and forth, these contrived beefs, these, you know, whatever, like Kwame Brown is looking like, he's looking like a prophet. He's looking like Negro Damas. Even though I've been here telling y'all the same shit prior, like he's winning right now. He's up. He's undefeated, never lost. He's LeVar. Kwame is killing it. And I'm just sitting here like, yeah, I told y'all so. All this shit is contrived. All this shit is made up. All this shit is about posturing. Sports media is wrestling. So what are you going to do? You're going to keep buying in? You're going to keep aggregating clips? You're going to keep retweeting shit? You're going to keep engaging in debates on Twitter? Or are you just going to know what it is and don't fall for the fuck shit? That's what I've decided to do. Y'all notice I don't I don't retweet all that shit that be flying all over the time. I don't aggregate that stuff. I might come on my platform that I independently control and talk about it. But I'm not going to sit here on other people's platforms and blow up other people's shit. Because that's what they want. That's what they're doing it for. I take it and put it on my content and do with it what I want to do with it. But to just sit here and engage online and give your impressions and your clicks and your eyeballs to these people when you know it's fake, when you know it's contrived, when you know it's predetermined. You think Shannon and Skip don't have that shit's contrived. 
first take contrived. All of this shit, the debate shows, is contrived. They rehearse. You know why? Because I've been on those types of shows. You tell them what you're going to say in advance. And the producers may get in your head and be like, hey, look, so if he takes this angle, then maybe you should flip it to that angle. I've been in those chairs. What's really good? Just like I said, you know, when it comes to Ben Simmons, it's not Ben, it's you. When it comes to this Rachel Nichols thing and what does it mean and I need a deep dive, we need like a 10-part last dance doc on how all of this, it's not them, it's you. Y'all really don't care about Scotty calling Phil Jackson a racist? I put that poll up on the pod Twitter page at the SamD podcast on Twitter and not one fucking vote in terms of the four topics you were looking forward to most. Not a one for Phil Jackson being called a racist by a player he won six championships with. Interesting. Well, y'all going to get this work anyway. Because uh, to me, that shit was amazing. It's not because Scotty's been holding that in for a minute. That's low-key been bubbling for a very long time. Obviously, we could point to, uh, you know, Phil calling LeBron's crew a posse and the racial implications that came with that and the firestorm that followed that. But, I mean, we can go further. If you go to Phil's books, and I've read a couple of his later books, uh, the one, the Tello book that Scotty mentioned about Kobe. I read that book. And then I think I read the one with the Montana landscape cover. I forget the name of that one. But if you go way back, <laughs> way back into time, uh, I think his first book, Maverick, there's some things there in terms of the acumen or lack thereof of acumen in comparison of black players to white uh, playground street ball abilities versus fundamental basketball. Like all the MAGA low key, the low key MAGA rhetoric, it's all there. So for Scotty just to come out and say the words though, because the words racist, it's almost worse to be called racist than to actually be racist. That's how society has turned that word on its ear. So that's where we're at now, where calling Phil Jackson racist is this damning indictment. But it's almost like it doesn't really matter if Phil actually is racist or not. And what does racist actually mean? So if you feel that whites are smarter, more fundamentally sound as basketball players than black players who are more instinctual and act more on their natural physicality, does that make you racist? If that comes to a head where you have a top 50 of all time player who's won you to that point three championships or has been a catalyst to help you win three championships. You can argue that that first championship was won primarily because of Scotty, 
the fact that he could play defense on Magic Johnson and lock him up when Magic low-key cooked MJ game one. We'll look past that. But yes, this top 50 player of all time helped you get three championships and you choose to bring a rookie Croatian, give him the final shot. And yes, the Croatian makes the shot, so you look like a genius. But what was the reasoning behind saying no to a top 50 of all time player in a big spot and going to a rookie Croatian bomber? I mean, the answer kind of tells itself, Scotty can never shoot, right? It doesn't mean that Scotty couldn't have made that shot that one time, but if you're playing the odds, if you're playing the analytics, if you're playing the skill sets, Tony Kukoc was a better better shooter than Scotty Pippen. So does that mean that Phil Jackson is racist because he chose Tony Kukoc to take a potential game-winning three over Scotty Pippen, who was not a good three-point shooter? by and large, throughout his career. No. But if you look at what he said in his early books, compare that to what he said with LeBron in the whole posse thing, it may not be racist, but it's at least bigotry. Where does bigotry fall in the hierarchy of uh, classifications of prejudice? Is racist the holy grail and bigot is kind of mid-tier? If there's a bronze, silver, and gold, if gold, if racist is gold, is bigot silver or bronze? Or is it participation trophy level? I don't know. But if I'm going to go with Phil on a sense of he played the, the skill set game there, he played the law of averages as in Tony Kukoc, was a ready-made three-point shooter, and Scottie Pippen wasn't. I'll cop the plea for him. I'll let him get that off. But from what he said in his early books about white players being smarter than black, about white players leaning more on fundamentals and learning to play the game the right way, a la Larry Brown, than black guys who leaned more on their athleticism, that type of rhetoric falls in line, maybe not with racism, but damn sure bigotry and prejudice. And this is a guy that's coached all around, you know, he coached in Puerto Rico. So this is a guy who has had to deal with different cultures playing the game of basketball. He's had to deal with displaced Africans all over the world. Oh yeah, I didn't know that Puerto Ricans were displaced Africans. I mean... You heard what Paul Mooney said. They're just, that can swim. I mean, anyway. So yeah, Phil should be used to, you know, that type of energy where you're dealing with minorities and minorities because we're minorities, even though in basketball we're not minorities, but just by and large, we're minorities. So we have to deal with a whole bunch of built-in, uh, well, what's the word? built-in buttons that we have to fight against, right? When we see a black player play fundamentally sound or play the game the right way, like Shane Battier. Shane Battier played the game the right way. Who do they chalk that up to? Is it because of him 
or is it because of Coach K? I heard that he was a smart player, but you know what I heard right after that? Praise for Coach K. That's normally how that flowed. But then you have black players that are freakish athletically, and you get the, you know, the terms bully ball and, you know, jump out the gym and he's a freak athlete and this, that, and the third. But when a black player just plays the game fundamentally sound, like Jesus, Jesus played the game the right way, fundamentally sound, damn near perfect jump shot, perfect release, play defense, could jump out the gym at one point, but you get a lot of credit to Jim Calhoun. It's not that he did that or that he came out the womb that way. It's because he went to college and who he played for in college. Whereas you have a guy like Sean Kemp, freakish, rain man, jump out the gym, dunk on people's heads, swing on the rim, point at you, all that stuff. Intelligence was never brought up. Acumen was never brought up. It was just always the rain man. I'll never forget. The 30 for 30 on the Knicks winning time. And the way that Jeff Van Gundy talked about the late, great Anthony Mason. Shout out to Southside. You know how we do. Jeff Van Gundy basically called Anthony Mason dumb. Called him stupid. And he called him that because of the inbounds play with Reggie Miller where he stole the ball in, you know, what he got, eight points in nine seconds or some crazy shit like that. He called Anthony Mason stupid. Now, while you can say that play was not the right play, not the smart play, that's not how Jeff Van Gundy phrased it. He said we had one of our stupid players, one of our dumb players make a dumb play. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That's a little deeper. That's not. You know, no one called Isaiah Thomas dumb or stupid when he passed the rock and Bird stole the ball, passed it, to, passed it to Dennis Johnson, they got the layup. They said it was a dumb play. Dumb decision. Not a smart move. But no one called Zeke dumb, stupid. But here's Jeff Van Gundy who's called him one of the earliest predecessors of a point forward. Anthony Mason revolutionized basketball. And I'm not just saying that because he's from around the way. And I'm not just saying that because he's passed on. Point forward was created the term before Anthony Mason. But yet Jeff Van Gundy could call out here and call him out and call him dumb, stupid, whatever whatever synonym, and it's all good. So there is that underlying thing of black players having to deal with the notion of whether this was all athletic-based, just the natural athlete bringing the big bucks with the big woman, and you know the trope. Or, you know, Larry Bird, so fundamentally sound. Shooting back buckets in the driveway and, you know, French Lick. Jimmer Fredette, Adam Morrison, J.J. Reddick, Christian Leitner. Whereas black players, 
freak athletes. You know how smart you have to be to be Kevin Durant and to be that good? Smart you have to be to be LeBron? Smart you have to be to be Anthony Davis? James Harden? The list goes down the line. But Luka Doncic, though, if you... Th- Oof, man. It's a hot take. But if we polled Blue Check Boys and said, who's the smartest player in the NBA right now? Everyone's on the table, young and old. You think Luka's top five? Let's take out the usual suspects. They have to say LeBron's smart. They have to say Kevin Durant's smart. Where do you think Luka fits? Year three, where they astronomically high usage rate to the point where Christos Porzingis, who used to be top 10 in usage rate as a Nick, as a borderline all-star, now can can barely get 10 shots a game. Luka Doncic, 45% usage rate. Where do you think the blue check boys would have him in the pantheon of who's the smartest player in the league right now? The point for all will we'll definitely get some consideration. But where will Luka fall? Top five? Top ten? And that's what we're talking about here. So while I don't think Phil Jackson was racist in choosing Tony Kukos to take a shot over Scottie Pippen, I do think if you look in his history prior and post that moment, you can make a large case for him being at worst a bigot. You know what it is. Appreciate y'all for listening. Uh, If you haven't checked out that bonus content, listen to some angry callers get mad at me for calling the point fraud a point fraud and explaining in a very succinct way Listen to callers get frustrated. Listen to callers try to question my credibility. Uh, Listen to callers with accents try to chastise me for calling the man y'all call CP3, the man y'all call Chris Paul, uh, the point fraud. So check that out if you haven't already. Remember, we are pro downloads, not streams. Uh, I keep the file sizes small on purpose for y'all to download. So take advantage of that that helps me with analytics and things of that nature but as i said before the numbers are doing well just want to keep those going so downloads help me keep track of that because you know we're trying to move this somewhere we know we're trying to move this somewhere there's a larger thing happening here so i need everything that y'all can give me pause in terms of analytics to be able to keep pushing this thing where we need it to go to get the type of platform that uh i feel this deserves and y'all deserve so Appreciate y'all for listening. Y'all know how I do. Finals recap after every game. So I'll holla at y'all after game two. For the CMD Podcast, I'm the CMD. I'm out.